Well, we began a few weeks ago looking at our series uh, on marriage. And I want us, uh, having taken a week off last week, to bring us up to speed on the important points of what we've talked about so far. We began by talking about the beauty of God's design when he created the marriage relationship between one man and one woman for a lifetime and how he built within that design a beautiful picture of his redemptive love. The gospel and marriage explain one another. And because of that value, we talked about how he protected that design with the covenant promise, that promise of future love, not only just to to love the other person in that moment as you stood at the altar, but to be loving for a lifetime, to be faithful for a lifetime, a covenant promise of love. But then we talked about the destruction of God's design. When sin entered the world and man and woman both chose to pursue selfish gain instead of trusting in God's provision and protection. But as we would expect from a loving God, He had redemption in mind and planned it from eternity past. And we see that in the life of Christ. And so because of our faith in the sacrifice that He made on our behalf, we know that there is an indwelling work of the Spirit that redeems what sin has corrupted. And as we look at our passage this morning, we're going to see that redemption and what it looks like in the relationship between a husband and a wife. As I thought about it this week, and this is the way my brain works because I'm very simple-minded, so I have to think of simple things to grasp profound truths. And this is what came to my mind. It's kind of like this ball in the spring. If you compress this ball in the spring, there's a potential energy here. And if I release this ball, the spring will set it in motion, okay? And, And... If I continue to do that, it'll keep working, but you'll notice it's in random directions. There's really no movement towards any specific goal. And when I think about that, that reminds me of what it's like to try to function in a marriage relationship in our own wisdom. It's inconsistent. It moves in a variety of directions and never towards an intended goal. But the other thing that I thought of was this. I'm going to go to the back of the auditorium and I'm going to shoot an arrow. Actually, I'm not going to do that at all. (laughs) But I want you to look at this because this is an impressive bow, isn't it? Thank you, Brian. But this bow was designed with a specific purpose in mind. And it is intended to accomplish a certain goal. And it's intended to hit a certain target. And when I think about this, I think about the design of a relationship that God created when man and woman are filled with the Spirit. Because it's that filling of the Spirit that allows us to have purpose in the direction as we move to a certain goal. When when the Spirit is directing our life, our love looks a certain way. And it moves us to experience the very center of, of God's best in our life. That's what it looks like to be controlled and moved by the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. 
And that's the picture that we see in Ephesians 5 in the passage that we will look at this morning. Love directed by God's Spirit looks a certain way. In fact, the love He designed for the marriage relationship has to originate in Him. In fact, there's a passage in 1 John familiar to us. I've mentioned it before. 1 John 4, 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another. Here's this. For this love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And then he goes on in verse 11 and says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has beheld God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. How? The next verse. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. Love is from God. And God's Spirit gives us access to love and directs us to experience that love in the relationship that He created us for. Both with Him and in the marriage relationship between a husband and a wife. Really, the love that we experience is a fruit of the Spirit at work in our hearts so that we can know the center of God's very best for us. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do come to Your Word Um, And for me, with some excitement this morning, as I know that there is a beautiful description of what you intend for us to know and experience in our relationships between a husband and a wife that that flows out and comes from the love that originates in you. So, Father, I pray that as we look at this passage together that we experience and understand the fullness of what you intend it to be and that we would not be distracted by things that that are so common in our world today that really pull us away from the heart of the specific things that are spoken of in this passage this is a misunderstood passage because of the corruption of sin in the world but it's beautiful when looked through the eyes of god and may we see that clearly this morning We pray this in your name. Amen. If you would, turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to begin actually where we left off in verse 22. And I want us to to look at that together. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. says this. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ also is is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. I think it's interesting when we look at this in the original text, the verses 18 through 24 are actually grammatically one sentence. And the only reason I bring that up is because I think it's really important, and I believe the author intended for us to to tie in the things that we've talked about up to this point as we enter into this relationship between a husband and wife. Those qualities of being filled by the Spirit, living in thankful reverence, and, and following the example of what we see in Christ, so that it yields a certain result in our relationship 
of marriage. He begins with the attribute of a spirit-filled wife when he says, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, let me remind you that as we walk into this passage, what, what Paul is doing is explaining the effect of the Spirit's work in the life of believers. Knowing that the Spirit is the antidote to the sin-cursed desire of a woman to rule over a man, which we know to be what happens as a result of sin. And this is Paul's description of what it looks like for that curse to, to be reversed in a sense. So that instead of identifying the the weaknesses of where she can be superior to her husband, a spirit-filled wife comes alongside her husband to validate him in his strengths. And women, I want you to, to hear this very clearly. There is no voice more powerful in the heart of a man than the affirming words of his wife. And in the same way, there are no words more defeating than her condemnation. See, submission in the heart of a spirit-filled wife is a willful act of love toward her husband in obedience to Christ. And I want you to notice a couple of things as you look at that verse 22. The first one is that it says, to her own husband. What that's communicating here is that it's not all women to all men. That's a chauvinistic view that is not supported in Scripture. These are attributes that are specific to the marriage relationship according to God's design. The second thing is that her submission is to her own husband as to the Lord. The parallel passage in Colossians says, as is fitting to the Lord. Again, this is in no way implying that the man is to be the Lord over his wife. That, again, is the effect of the curse. Instead, a wife's submissive love for her husband is a reflection of her submissive love for Christ. The one is dependent upon the other. And when you have that submissive love for Christ, it flows into your marriage relationship as well. Because the oneness that we have in our marriage flows out of our fellowship with Christ. And I believe when we understand this truth, it's what gives value and dignity to the role of a woman in the relationship of marriage. Because I understand that when you mention that word submission or to be subject to, it carries all types of demeaning connotations. But I want you to hear me clearly. It is only demeaning when understood outside the context of Scripture. Because according to the Bible, there is as much godliness in the heart of submission as there is in the role of headship. There is as much godliness in the heart of submission as there is in the role of headship. And I know this is to be true because we have to look no further than what the Scripture tells us to do by looking at the example of Christ. Let me give you some of those examples. John chapter 6, verse 38 says, Jesus speaking, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. 
verse chapter 8, verse 28, says, Jesus therefore said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. John 14, 31, says this. I'll start in verse 30. I will not speak much more with you. This is Jesus. For the ruler of the world is coming and he has nothing in me. But the world may know that I love the Father. And as the Father gave my commandment, gave me commandment, even so I do. Arise, let us go from here. And then that familiar passage in Luke where, where Jesus is staring at the cross and he says, not my will, Father, but thy will be done. The point here is that I want you to understand that there is complete equality in the fellowship of the Trinity. And yet, the life of Jesus was in submission to the will of His Father. Jesus was fully God. Equal in nature. Equal in dignity. Equal in deity. And yet, none of this changed with His willing submission to the Father. In fact, His submission, as He said in His own words, was the truest expression of His love. John 15. John 15, verse 9. It says, Just as the Father has loved Me, I also love you. Abide in My love. If you keep My commandments, you will abide in My love. Here's this. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. His submission to the will of the Father was the truest expression of His love. And wives, the same is true for you. Submission is not demeaning. In fact, it is a divine attribute. It is a sacred privilege. It lived out according to the example of that we see in Christ. Because wives, your truest expression of your love for your husband is your willing submission to to come alongside him and to see him through the eyes of Christ. To love him in ways that, that help him be the man that God created him to be. Affirming his strengths. Supporting him in his weaknesses pointing him to Christ as the source of his hope and strength. Wives, you honor God through loving submission, just as we see in the example of Christ as he honored his Father through the same. You have the privilege of a holy calling of highest importance. Submission is not demeaning. It is a divine attribute seen clearly in the life of our Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, I thought about this passage and I I wonder why Paul begins here in the submission of the wife to her husband. And I wonder if it is perhaps the basis by which the man fulfills his calling to lead with self-sacrifice. See, godly submission promotes godly headship. 
It, in some ways, reverses that order that was disrupted by Satan. You remember how we looked at that. God established a certain order, and what did Satan do? He turned it upside down, and putting the woman in a role of headship that she was not designed for. So, in God's wisdom, Paul begins there and, and establishes the importance of what the order is intended to be. Because if we're operating in our sinful nature, as I mentioned, the inclination of the woman is to, to rule over the man. And there's a law in physics by Newton that says that every action requires an equal and opposite reaction. That is true in relationships as well. Because when the woman seeks to rule over the man, the man in his sinful nature will seek to dominate the woman. And this becomes a battle of the wills that in some cases lasts an entire lifetime because they never experience the fullness of what God intended because they're trying to one-up the other. Or the other thing that I often see is they do this for so long until somebody finally gives up and says, okay, you can have it. And then it becomes a dictatorship and not a relationship. But when the wife has a heart of submission, it sets the table for the man to develop a self-sacrificing role of leadership. You see, the spirit-filled husband loves his wife with a self-sacrificing love. His headship is for the sake of harmony. Just as Christ emptied Himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, in order to bring about the highest good for His bride, you and I, the church. So too the husband it leads his wife by considering her needs as more important than his own. Like Jesus, he is strengthened by the Spirit to protect his wife physically, emotionally, spiritually. This is, I know, a silly example, but as, as men, as husbands, we typically are bigger or stronger than our wives and we are designed that way to protect them. And when Terry and I go for a walk, just subconsciously, I'll always take the inside track so that if something ever comes our way, I'm in the middle of whatever that is in her because I protect her. God created me for that purpose. A lot of times men get a bad rap because emotionally that we don't connect as well as we should, but sometimes that's the strength God has given us. <laughs> to, to not be moved by the emotions in difficult times, but to be something that's steady and strong. And, and in the same way, we are called, we are commissioned to be the spiritual leaders of our marriage relationship. That's why it says in 1 Peter 3, 7, to live with your wife in an understanding manner. Why? Because if you don't, what happens? Your prayers are hindered. We need to be a student of our wife's heart so that we might affirm her gifts and protect her in her weaknesses. To love her in ways that, that helps her become the woman that God intended her to be. And pointing her to Christ as the, the place where she finds her ultimate sufficiency. See, honoring God through Loving self-sacrifice is just what we see in the example of Christ. And as men, we are called to go and do the same. Now, not unlike submission, 
when you start talking about the order in a relationship, again, there are all kinds of demeaning connotations that come with that. But I'll say it again. Only when understood outside the context of Scripture. Because God established order without diminishing the value of people. And again, we look no further than what we see in the example of Christ. There's a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, that says this, But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of woman, and God is the head of Christ. I want us to, to focus on that last statement. God is the head of Christ. And let me ask you a couple of questions. Does the headship of the Father diminish the deity of the Son? Is God the Son less than God the Father if God is the head of Christ? No. It's the beauty of the fellowship of the Trinity. And the fellowship of the Trinity shows us that there is equality in order. See, headship includes this idea of, of superiority only when it's understood in a context outside of the example of Scripture. And really, you don't have to look any further than what you see in business, right? The CEO in the hierarchy of a business has, is superior than his, than his subordinates. Why? Because he makes the most money. He has the most influence in that organization. And you can work your way down that list, and and the same would be true for the vice president who makes more than his subordinates and has more authority and influence than they do. And so if you want to work your way up the ladder in business, then you need to advance your degrees to gain more knowledge and expand your influence so that you can make more money and have more power. But that is not what is true within the Trinity, and therefore it is not the model of what you see in marriage. Just as in the fellowship of the Trinity, there is equality with husband and wife right alongside headship and submission. Just as the Father is not superior to the Son, despite His authority over Him, so too the husband is not superior to the wife, even though God has given him the role of authority in the marriage. See, our world has a warped view of these ideas of headship and submission. And they have all kinds of negative connotations that are not supported in the context of Scripture. What a a beautiful example of what we see in the fellowship of the Trinity and how it is to be lived out in our marriage relationships. See, the Spirit-filled wife lives in loving submission to her husband as an overflow of her loving submission to Christ. The Spirit-filled husband sacrificially leads his wife out of the overflow of the headship of Christ in his life. The fellowship of the Trinity is lived out in the beauty of the marriage relationship. A relationship created, as we said in the beginning, from the image of of sacred fellowship in the Trinity. And it is lived out according to that pattern. 
There's unity in diversity in the one flesh relationship of marriage. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but as I've considered it, it brings a depth and a wonder and a beauty to the marriage relationship that I've never appreciated before. But it only happens. It only becomes true in our life when we relinquish our control to put limits on our love. Look at verse 24. It says, But as Christ is subject to, or as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. So what exactly does that mean? For the wives to be subject to their husbands in everything. Again, taken outside of the biblical context, this has dangerous implications. It becomes an idea that exploits women instead of protecting them. Because biblical love always operates within moral boundaries. I want you to notice the the parameters of the wife's submission as a mirror of the church's submission to Christ. And I want you to just think about that because that involves you and I as a part of the church, His bride. And so what are some of those qualities? One of the things that I think of is that it's a personal decision on our part. See, God does not force our obedience for His benefit. He is sufficient in and of Himself. But in His love and grace towards us, He wants us to obey for the good of the relationship that He desires to have with us. In the same way, the submission of the wife in a relationship of marriage is voluntary. It is a willing submission of love. Wives, let me just add here that this is not restricted to only those things that coincide with your personal needs. We understand that submission requires sacrifice. Giving up personal desires often promotes a healthier relationship. That's true in marriage and it's true in life in general. For example, what's healthier? Eating anything you want, anytime you want, And as much as you want, or limiting yourself so that you don't eat everything you want as much as you want anytime you want. In fact, sometimes you eat things you don't necessarily like because why? You know they're good for you. You see, the willful submission of the wife is based on what's best for the relationship. And sometimes that's self-limiting. We need to be careful here. Because we want this love to be free and not obligated. And the same is true in our relationship with the Lord. We love God out of humility and not out of selfish compliance or obligation. Kind of this idea of I'll do it, but I don't necessarily, it doesn't necessarily mean that I, that I like it. And we know what God's opinion is of even religious ritual when the heart is not connected. Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, tells us what that is. He says, For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. You see, obligation does not express love. Just as religious ritual is empty and not pleasing in the eyes of God. God wants us to know Him. 
and to love Him out of this knowledge. To follow Him because we believe in Him. Including trusting Him in the absence of complete understanding at times. In the same way, the loyal love of the wife looks for reasons to respect her husband instead of cataloging his faults. Honoring him without completely understanding him at times and maybe a lot of the time. It's a spirit-filled wife who wants to be a student of her husband's heart, looking for things to love about him. You see, like in our walk with Christ, submission is not earned. It's learned. Like in our walk with Christ, submission is not earned. It is learned. It's an act of the will for a spirit-filled wife in obedience to Christ. It's a, it's a decision based more on her faith in God than in her confidence in the abilities of her husband. Believing that God is able to do redemptive work through her submissive obedience. First to Him and then to her husband. And I want you to think about that because there is a, a powerful, powerful truth in that message. In fact, we see that played out in First Peter Chapter 3, verse 1. Listen to this. In the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. You see, a husband's heart can be changed without a word from his wife through her pure in respectful behavior. Your obedience is what is the biggest impact on his disobedience. See, wives are not given the responsibility to retrain their husbands, but they do possess the power of a sanctifying love when it flows out of their walk with Christ. So if you're asking yourself, how do I change my husband? Here's the answer. Live in obedience to Christ. There is a sanctifying power that works amazing things when you allow Christ to live through you. Now, as we think about just these three verses, there's all kinds of of practical application that that we can pull out of it. And I want to give you some things that that came to me as I worked through this um, in preparation. One of the things that stood out to me is that love is a decision and not just an emotion. You see, we are commanded to love one another. If you look at Ephesians 5, as we have examined together, you'll see that there are certain commands that He gives to to both husbands and wives. But if you think about it, emotion in and of itself cannot be commanded. Right? We know that because if we're going through a difficult time and we're really dealing with something hard or, or grief, we can't just, at the snap of fingers, say, I'm going to be happy. I'm just going to decide right now I'm going to... I'm going to be happy. It just doesn't work that way because you cannot command an emotion. You can only command actions. And so that's why we can experience the fruit of an emotion by living out certain actions. So if we are thinking about that difficult situation that we're in, we can either fixate on the problem or we can turn to God in seeking 
his direction for solution. Looking at his word to see what his promises are. Clinging to those promises. Those are actions that we take that bear the fruit of a certain emotion, which is why we can experience joy in the midst of difficulty. Not because we just decided one day, I'm going to be joyful. It's because it's a fruit of the Spirit at work in our life when we turn to Him for that purpose. And that same principle applies in marriage. Loving actions bear the fruit of loving emotion. That's why it's a mistake to believe that you must first feel love in order to give love. That's not a true statement. Now, there's, an, there's a very um, powerful testimony of this from the life of C.S. Lewis. He was speaking uh, during the time of World War II. And you know the atrocities of Nazi Germany. And of all things that Lewis was speaking about, it was forgiveness. And you can imagine what that sounded like in the context of what they were experiencing and how hard that was to swallow. So listen to what... C.S. Lewis had to say as he spoke to that issue uh, in his broadcast. He said, "Though Though natural likings should normally be encouraged, it would be quite wrong to think that the way to become charitable is to sit trying to manufacture affectionate feelings. The rule for all of us is perfectly simple. Do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love him. If you injure someone you dislike, you will find yourself disliking him more. If you do him a good turn, you will find yourself disliking him less. Whenever we do good to another person, Just because it is a person made like us by God and desiring its own happiness as we desire ours, we shall have learned to love it a little more or at least dislike it a little less. The worldly man treats certain people kindly because he likes them. The Christian trying to treat everyone kindly finds himself liking more and more people as he goes on, including people he could not even have imagined himself liking At the beginning. And then he gives a powerful illustration of that truth. Listen to this. He says, this same spiritual law works terribly in the opposite direction. Remember the context. The Germans, perhaps, at first ill-treated the Jews because they hated them. Afterwards, they hated them more, much more, because they ill-treated them. The more cruel you are, the more you will hate. And the more you hate, the more cruel you will become. And so on in a vicious cycle. It's a powerful truth when we understand the power of our choices. And I believe God calls us to certain actions because He understands their power to change our heart. You see, our culture says that feelings of love are the basis of actions of love. That's sometimes but often not always true. It's even more true that our actions of love can lead to feelings of love. Because we always have more control over our actions than we do our emotions. So choose to love. And in choosing to love, you learn to love. But that only works when your actions 
are a response to the Spirit and not a reaction to your spouse. I can't tell you how many times I've heard a statement that goes something like this. I would be more loving if my husband or my wife would just do their part. It's a reactionary love. It tells us, as we saw in verse 21, to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Actions of love flow out of our fellowship with Christ. Because we do not possess the quality of love that God designed for a marriage in and of ourselves. God is love, and that love must originate in Him. Because you see, as, as Luke tells us, Luke 6.32 says, Jesus speaking, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who gave you... That's not the right verse. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. The point is, is that what benefit, even sinners say, if you love me, I'll love you back. They possess that reactionary love. But that's not the love of God. And here's the passage that I turn to to know that that's true. For God so loved the world that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. Let me ask you the question. Does all the world love God? No. Does it change His love for the world? No. That is the love we are called to possess. And if the stability of our relationship is based on our emotional reactions, you're in for a very bumpy ride. If that's the path you take, it will become emotionally exhausting. And ultimately, I need you to understand that a reactionary love has a root of selfishness in it. Because what it says, in essence, is I'll love you if I get something in return. And if that's the case, when the thrill wears off and we don't receive what we think we deserve, we start looking for a change. Turning to other things where we might find the love that we think we deserve. But the love of God is a fruit of the Spirit, not what we can manufacture on our own. Because as we've looked at that passage before, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses Knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. We have to give to our spouse out of the fullness of who we are in Christ. This kind of love only finds its source in God. And only when we find our identity in Christ and not our relationship with another person. You see, that's why I think Paul gives such great value to those who are single, which we will talk about before we're done with this series. The reason is, is because he understands that when that is healthy, these are people who find their value not in the arms of another person, but completely fulfilled in their sufficiency in Christ. See, marriage was never intended to be a relationship where we find our value in our spouse. You see, it's beautiful and life-giving. 
only when we look to Christ to meet our deepest needs and not our spouse. I want to give you an example of that from a personal story. I'm going to let you into my marriage a little bit. Terry and I were talking about this. I don't remember exactly when it was. It was before we had kids, but we took a a great trip to California. And uh, while we were there, we saw all kinds of of beautiful sights and and things that we truly, truly enjoyed. And it was a special, special time. We look back on that trip with great fondness. There was one particular scene where we were on Carmel Beach. Let me tell you the story behind this, I think. We were on Carmel Beach, and we put the ocean in the backdrop and set up our camera to be a self-timer, okay? So Terry, she's the photographer, set it up, hit the timer, runs over there, and we're posing real nicely, looking at the camera. And then all of a sudden, Terry grabs me and turns my face towards her and gives me this kiss. It just captured the moment perfectly. Fast forward two years. I'm holding that picture in my hand in my backyard. And I'm asking God, where did this go? I don't know what it is about that seven-year mark, but it's a hump that you have to get over for some people, and it was true for us. And that's about the time that I was staring at this picture and asking God, what ever happened to this? How do I get this back? And I remember distinctly that night, it was unusual for Lubbock because it was starting to rain. (laughs) This is a little bit of just a misty rain. And I don't necessarily claim to have heard a, a voice from heaven, but I do know that God spoke to my heart very clearly. He said, you experience that love when you decide to love just as I have decided to love you. Go and do the same. I remember it like it was yesterday. And I remember in my heart there was a sincere conviction that said, I choose to do that. That's the love that I'm committing myself to. Whether the emotion is there or not. Next month, we celebrate 21 years, and we're just getting started. And I want you to know that the love that we experience today doesn't even come close to comparison to even that moment because it's so much richer and deeper than it ever has been. And it's because there's the decision to love even when the emotion is not there. Marriage can never be what God intends it to be apart from a relationship with Christ. That's where we hear those things spoken to our heart. If you want to see God bring life to your marriage, then start by walking in fellowship with Christ. See, the happiest marriages you will ever see are the ones that are grounded in God's love. Why? Because as the psalmist says, he withholds no good thing. As James says, every good and perfect gift comes from our Father. So be 
filled with the Spirit. Allow Him to direct your heart to the center of God's best for your marriage. As you look to Christ is the example that we are to follow. And in that we see the beauty of submission within the context of a loving relationship in the sacred fellowship of the Trinity. We see that leadership in order within that same example of the Trinity. Those are the things we are called to follow. They are not demeaning. They are divine attributes. Look no further than Scripture to see that truth. Look outside of Scripture and it's warped. Be thankful for Scripture so we know what is true. Let me pray for us. God, thank You for just the wonder of Your Word. And I think we are just scratching the surface of the beauty of Your design. The marriage relationship created by You has such value and purpose in both women and men, wives and husbands. It is the foundation from which families flourish. And it is the example from which we see even the workers and the employees, employers, all of this ultimately looking in reverence to the example of what we see in Christ, who was the one who became flesh so that we could see that picture portrayed for us with our very eyes. And to know in our hearts that what He lived is what we are called to follow and is made possible by the redemptive work of the Holy Spirit in our life. May we be those people. And that's why I, I can see how we would give glory to You when You bring us these good things through the promises of Your work in our life through the power of Your Spirit. What else can we do but say thank You praise You, honor You above all things. What a great and wonderful God You are. So loving, so kind. We pray this in Your name. Amen.